Good afternoon. It is a blessing, uh, a joy to be here, very encouraged by many visitors with us. I want to invite you to open your Bibles together with us. If there's anything of value uh, that's going to be said today, uh, it is not going to come from the mouth of Grady Huggins. It's going to come from the mouth of God, uh, and that's where we want the, the focus to be. In the passage that Jonathan just read for us in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus tells the Pharisees, uh, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know, if if Jesus says, go and learn what this means, this is something important. This is something you need to learn. This is something you need to spend some time thinking about. Then our ears should perk up. (laughs) If the Pharisees needed to learn this. Uh, Certainly, it's something that that we need to give some time to, some thought to. What does it mean that God desires mercy and not sacrifice? This is actually one of many statements in the Old Testament that compares some principle or some aspect of character with the value of sacrifice. Uh, And so we're going to see, Lord willing, over the next few weeks, God desires obedience and not sacrifice. God desires repentance and not sacrifice. Here, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, So I want us to, to spend some time thinking about that comparison, thinking about the point that God is making through that, and thinking about how that applies to our service to him today. I think, first of all, we need to recognize that when God says he desires something and not sacrifice, that should be um, presented to us as something of astounding importance. In the old law, the practice of sacrifice was a constant aspect of Israelite worship. In fact, in Exodus chapter 29, verse 28 and 29, God commanded what is known as the continual burnt offering. So basically, at the the tabernacle, later at the temple, day by day, there would be a burnt offering in the morning, and it would continue to burn into the afternoon, and then there would be another burnt offering in the evening, and that would continue to burn. Basically, there wasn't a time of day where the altar was not in use, that God was not having his people bring sacrifice to him. And if we read through the book of Leviticus, I mean, think about how much God emphasizes the different types of sacrifices they were to bring and worship. Uh, Enumerates the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the free will offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, sacrifices for the consecration of the priests, sacrifices for purification after childbirth, sacrifices for the cleansing of disease, sacrifices on the day of atonement, sacrifice for the Passover, sacrifices for a whole host of other feast days. So when you think about sacrifice from an Old Testament perspective, it's something we see all over the place. It was something that was a constant aspect of the Israelites' worship to the Lord as God commanded it to be. And so when we see a scripture that says, this is more important than sacrifice, I desire this and not your sacrifices, that that statement is not intended to belittle the importance of sacrifice to the Israelites, right? That statement is intended to impress upon their minds how important uh, this other aspect, this other value that God is emphasizing is. 
There was perhaps no outward act of worship more central to the Old Covenant than the act of sacrifice. And yet, God has some things to say about their character, about their hearts, about their day-to-day lives that are going to be much more important than that. And so even though we today don't have sacrifice as an aspect of our worship under the new covenant, I, I hope we can try to put ourselves in their shoes for a little bit and try to read these statements from their eyes and be just as impressed as they would be with the importance of what God is saying. And so what does it mean when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? The passage that Jesus is referring to there in Matthew uh, chapter 9 comes from Hosea 6, but this is really an idea that we see throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see in quite a few of the prophets uh, this theme of mercy and not sacrifice. If you want to open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6 with me, The New King James Version here says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Um, The ESV translates this word mercy, steadfast love. The New American Standard says loyalty. The Christian Standard says faithful love. The the word for mercy and not sacrifice is, is a Hebrew word that has two core aspects to it. The aspect of faithfulness or commitment, that's why the New American Standard translates it loyalty. And the aspect of love, steadfast love, mercy. If you remember what the book of Hosea is about, that word takes on a much deeper significance. Um, Look with me in Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5, let's read verse 6 and 7 together. Starting in verse 6 of Hosea chapter 5, it says, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. For he has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. We see the same concept earlier in Hosea chapter 5. They're bringing their sacrifices to the Lord, but he's not going to be there. Why? Because they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. You remember what God tells Hosea to do earlier in the book? He tells him to go and love a woman who has come from harlotry. And what happens after he marries this woman, she is unfaithful to him. She goes back into harlotry. And God uses that as an illustration of what his people have done against him. That's what he's talking about here. They have dealt faithlessly with them. They've borne alien children. They, they have had these relationships with foreign gods, with foreign nations, and given their devotion and commitment to them instead of the Lord Jehovah, their husband. And so as we get into Hosea 6, he's continuing this idea. Look at Hosea 6 and verse 4. Verse 4 says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Do you see that context? He says, your love is like a morning cloud. Like the dew that quickly passes away. Uh, You don't truly love me. You you might say that you love me. You might act like you love me. But very quickly, you go away and deal faithlessly. 
I don't want your sacrifices. I, I don't want your gifts. I don't want your peace offerings. I want you. I want your hearts. I want your love. I want you to have a relationship with me, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. So God doesn't want their outward acts of worship. He wants them, their hearts. He wants a relationship with them. He wants them to know him and reflect his character, reflect his steadfast love and mercy. The core principle behind this idea is that God doesn't just want our outward acts of worship. God wants the inward man. God doesn't just want some show of religiosity. God wants our hearts, hearts that are genuinely devoted to him. God doesn't want our stuff. He wants us, a relationship, a genuine, intimate, loving relationship with us. But Hosea isn't the only one that tells us that. In fact, this is a theme throughout the Old Testament prophets. Just today in our Bible class, we looked at Isaiah chapter 1, if you want to turn over there again. For those of you who weren't in that class, we'll go ahead and read this passage again. Isaiah chapter 1 Starting in verse 11, God says to his people, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God says, I've had enough of your sacrifices. He goes through a long list of different things that they've been bringing. Your rams, your well-fed beasts, your bulls, your lambs, your goats. It's not that... You just haven't found the right thing that I like. You know, it's not the, the type of incense that you're bringing. It's, it's not your, your posture in prayer. I can't endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You're not truly giving your, your lives. You're just giving me your stuff. And I'm not interested in that. Just like back in Hosea, God's not just interested in some peace offering to mend the relationship that they've broken. And as long as they pay him off, you know, he'll forget about what they've done against him. No, God wants them, their lives. And he wants their lives to ultimately reflect his character and the way that they treat other people. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's not about the right formula of worship, creating the right atmosphere, going through the right motions. It's about having the right heart and having God's character living within us. We see this concept again in Amos chapter 5, if you want to turn over there. If we don't get the point in uh, one prophet, uh, another prophet will emphasize it again for us. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. 
starting in verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. As we said God told them he wanted their sacrifices, right? He, he enumerated a great deal of sacrifices that he wanted them to bring. But he's saying this again and again to try to drive it home to his people. It's not about the outward acts of worship. If those aren't flowing forth from a life that has been fully given to me, if those aren't flowing forth from a heart that is truly given to me, to a genuine relationship with me, then it means nothing. In fact, it's not just that I don't want them, I hate them. They're an insult to me. God desires us first and foremost. We cannot go through the outward acts of worship uh, and be pleasing to the Lord. Can't just check off our boxes uh, of, of going to services, taking the Lord's Supper, you know, uh, paying my dues, now, first and foremost, my life has to reflect the character of God. We see this once again in Micah, Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Micah says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Here Micah says, well, I, I want to come to God. I, I want to bow before him. What, what do I need to bring to him? Will he, will he be pleased with, with burnt offerings? What, what about a thousand rams? What about 10,000 rivers of oil? You know, imagine how great of a gift that is, how, how much of a sacrifice that is. I mean, that, that's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of resources that are going in to, to worshiping the Lord. What about giving my, my firstborn? What about like Abraham, when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac? Is that what God wants of us? That, that's a tremendous sacrifice, required a great deal of faith on Abraham's part. Is that what God ultimately wants of me? You know, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. Where it says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It doesn't matter the depth of the sacrifice we give to the Lord. It doesn't matter how much it costs us. Uh, 
if we haven't given our lives to him, then that's not going to matter. Yes, worship is important. Yes, God desires our worship. But worship has to be the outflowing of a life and a heart that is honoring God, is glorifying God, is reflecting his character from day to day. And if it's not, God isn't just displeased with it. God abhors it. That's the principle that we're seeing here in Hosea, that we're seeing throughout the prophets, is I'm not just interested in sacrifice. I'm not interested in how much you can pay me, how much you, you, uh, you know, are, are willing to go without and worship to me, how, how religious it looks to other people. I'm interested in you and your heart and your life. God desires a transformation of inward character, not just a demonstration of outward devotion. We must offer God right living before we can ever offer him right worship. You know, these passages that we looked at use a lot of different words. Mercy, justice, righteousness, do good, walk humbly. But all of that gets to the same point. That we have to have lives, we have to have character that demonstrate genuine devotion to the Lord. That God desires right living, not just right worship. So let's see this principle back in Jesus' teaching. Turn back now to that passage that Jonathan read for us, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 10. It says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so we've seen that principle in the Old Testament. We saw it in context. We saw it reiterated throughout the prophets. How is Jesus now using that principle here? You see, in context, the Pharisees' primary concern was avoiding contact with the morally unclean, keeping themselves separate, keeping themselves holy, not associating with any that would cast a shadow on their image of of religious piety. What's Jesus' primary concern? What is God's primary concern? It wasn't keeping up appearances of outward religion. It was showing God's love and mercy, showing God's character towards those who needed it the most. A sacrifice-first mindset values that which appears righteous and holy to men. A mercy-first mindset values that which genuinely reflects the heart of God. Right? For these Pharisees to go out and spend time with tax collectors and sinners, try to help them, try to teach them, well, that's not going to look so great to their religious friends. Right? But that's what would reflect the heart of God. And that's where the focus needs to be. Think about it this way, you know, a hospital needs to be a clean place, right? You're going to run into a whole lot of problems if 
you aren't maintaining cleanliness within a hospital. But cleanliness is not the primary goal of a hospital, is it? If that was the primary goal, then you know, anybody who shows up to the ER and, and is bleeding, uh, anybody with, with an active wound, well, we, we can't have you in here. We, we need to keep this place clean. We've entirely missed the point, right? Yes, keeping it clean is important, but it's important unto an end. The heart of the great physician isn't just interested in what appears holy and righteous to men. He's interested in helping hurting people become holy and become righteous by his grace. You know, a hospital needs to be clean. A hospital needs to be well-funded. It needs to be well-educated, well-staffed, efficiently run. But the goal of a hospital isn't just to become an impressive institution, right? And, and, and show people how, how clean we are and how educated our staff is and how well run we are. The goal of a hospital is to help people. How do we think about the church? You know, I, I'm afraid sometimes we, we get in the mindset that, well, the church needs to be clean. The church needs to be well run. The church needs to, to run efficiently, needs to be well staffed. You know, it needs to be uh, impressive credentials of what we're able to offer. You know, on a spiritual level, obviously, the church needs to be clean, right? We, we need to be pure and holy. We need to be learning and growing. But we can't forget what that's all about. It's about helping people. Become holy, become righteous by God's grace, helping people learn and grow and come to know the Lord and have a relationship with him and be transformed by his grace so that they can reflect his character and how they live from day to day. If we have a sacrifice first mindset, then when somebody comes in from the world and you know, they're kind of a liability, they, they don't really know how to conduct themselves in church properly. And, you know, they, they're bringing a lot of baggage in their life. Well, you know, well, we got to keep this church clean. I'm not sure we want them in here. Is that God's attitude? Is that his heart? Not at all. Now, in a mercy first mindset, we're going to be reaching out, trying to show God's character and show God's love to those in need. And, and new converts, people coming from the world, uh, you know, people that, that are, are learning and growing and maturing and, and have some, some areas where they're still stumbling, they're not liabilities. No, that, that's the mission. That's what it's all about. So we need to make sure we understand this concept that Jesus is referring to. God doesn't just want the outward show of holiness and righteousness. God wants lives and hearts that reflect his character. He wants us to have the heart of the great physician. But this isn't the only time that Jesus refers to this. Turn to Matthew 12 now. I want us to kind of build on what we've seen in the Old Testament prophets, build on what we saw in Matthew 9 uh, to understand this passage as well. We're going to start by reading Matthew 12, verse 1 through 8. Starting in verse 1, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. 
But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have contemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So you see that again in verse 7. It says, I told you to go learn what this meant. Obviously, you haven't learned it yet. You need to go back and learn what this means. What exactly is Jesus teaching in this section, though? How is he applying that passage? Um... You know, in context, at the end of chapter 11, Jesus has just offered rest. Offered, ultimately, the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. You remember there in uh, chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the fulfillment of Sabbath rest. And now in chapter 12, we immediately hear about the Pharisees' concept uh, of Sabbath rest. Um, The Pharisees have completely missed the point of the Sabbath. Viewing it from a sacrifice-first mindset as kind of a burdensome list of man-made restrictions by which they can demonstrate how meticulously holy they are. So Jesus addresses this problem really in two ways, primarily. Uh, First, by a proper understanding of who he is. And second, by a proper understanding of God's will and character as it applies to the Sabbath law. So let's look again at what we read. Look in verse 3. Jesus says, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. What, what's the point that Jesus is making here? Um, he doesn't immediately address whether or not what his disciples are doing are against the law. He's going to address that later. Um, but he gives them an example for them to think about. You know, in the old law, God's anointed, David, went to the priest and did something here, he says, that was not lawful for him to eat the bread of the presence, the showbread. Um, why, why does Jesus bring that up? You know, I, I do not think in the context here, Jesus is justifying what David did because David and his men were hungry. Right? Um, You know, Jesus isn't saying, well, okay, yes, what my disciples are doing is wrong. It's against the law. But but you don't understand, we're really hungry. You know, kind of like David and his men, and they were really hungry. This is an emergency situation. And so in that for that reason it's okay. Is that what Jesus is saying? You know, This is the same man that fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And when he was tempted by the devil to turn the stones into bread, 
to eat, refused to use his power. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was a whole lot hungrier then than his disciples were now. The emphasis here is not on, you know, the, the need that they're experiencing. I think the emphasis, especially in this first example, is who it was that did this. God's anointed, David, whom you look up to. He went and did something that, that at least normally would be against the law. Is there a chance that God had revealed to the priest that in this case, by his will, he could go ahead and do it? Maybe. Um, but David, the anointed, and the high priest under the old law had done this, and you at least w- wouldn't condemn that. He goes on to use another example, verse 5. Or, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. I think the emphasis here in verse 5 and 6 is the same as the emphasis in verse 3 and 4. It's who it was that did it. God's anointed, the priest, the priest in the temple, he says, profane the Sabbath. Did did the priest work on the Sabbath? You bet they did. That that was their busiest day of the week. Um, But the kind of work that they were doing was not the kind of work that the Sabbath was intended to restrict, right? The the sacrifices they were bringing, uh, the the prayers, the the service to the Lord, um, that's not what the Sabbath was addressing. And so, because of who they were and the work that they had been given, that was not a violation of the Sabbath. They were guiltless. They weren't violating the Sabbath. And what's the point Jesus makes? Verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Here, Jesus' ministry was greater than the ministry of the temple. Jesus' authority was greater than the authority of the priest or God's anointed under the old law. Jesus was the son of David, the Christ, the high priest for all time, the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 8, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so the primary point um, here, I I believe, is that... um, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' role, who he was, is greater than David, greater than the priests, uh, greater than than the Levites. But he says also in verse 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltness. This is the same problem that we saw in Matthew 9 in the hearts of the Pharisees. Right? Right? They condemned the guiltless. What Jesus' disciples had done was not against the Sabbath. Why did the Pharisees think it was? Because they had a sacrifice-first mindset, not a mercy-first mindset. Because they were interested in the way that they addressed the Sabbath law, they were interested in going to great lengths, going to great sacrifice to show how religious, show how righteous, show how holy they were. And they entirely missed the point. They missed the heart of God in this. Ultimately, uh, Jesus' primary point is that the Pharisees cannot properly keep the letter of the law until they first understand and keep the heart of the law. They had begun serving the law within itself and forgotten about serving the God who gave the law.
without giving their hearts to God and developing his character within them, their application of the law would never be what it needed to be. They would twist the law into something that served themselves, that promoted their own righteousness instead of serving God and extending his love and mercy to others around them. I want us to see this point continued into the following verses. Uh, Verse 9 through 14. Starting in verse 9, it says, He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What what does Jesus say here to their question? You know, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, maybe we can find a way to accuse him here. Jesus boldly and firmly says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And if you think it's not, you've entirely missed the point. I think when we read Matthew 12, we we need to realize Jesus is not saying that it's okay to disobey God's law um, as long as, you know, human need is involved. Um, And then we can bend the rules. Jesus firmly says in Matthew 12, it is lawful. This is according to God's law. This was the intent of God's law. There's no bending of God's law here. There's a recognition of what is at the heart of the law. The heart of God is at the heart of the law. And if we've misunderstood the heart of God, if we've left that out of our worship, then there is no way that anything we do is actually going to fulfill the law. That's the problem uh, that the Pharisees are facing here. They, They have ruled God out of the equation. They forgot about his heart and his intent. And as long as that's the case, they're always going to be twisting the law. Are we guilty of that? Do we come to the scriptures in an effort to promote our own feelings of being righteous? To bolster our pride of being conservative, Bible-believing, church-going people? Or do we come to the scriptures wanting to know God and better reflect his character of love and mercy to the world around us. I think the point of Hosea 6, the point of Jesus emphasizing this to us, is if if we don't understand God, if we don't understand his character, his mercy, his steadfast love, if we don't have a knowledge of God, as Hosea 6 says, We cannot be pleasing to him. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices we bring. It doesn't matter how consistent we are in our attendance. It doesn't matter how many boxes we've checked. If our lives haven't been given to the Lord. If we're not seeking to make his heart our own, his character, what's reflected in our lives from day to day, then we've missed the point entirely. And what we offer in worship will never be pleasing to him. Sacrifice was an extremely important element of the worship that God commanded under the old law. 
but it meant nothing if it didn't come from a heart and a life that first expressed honor to God and showing forth his love and his character to other people. So what about us? What about you? Are we just going through the motions? Are we trampling God's courts today? Will God look down at what he sees in our hearts and in our lives from day to day and say, shut the doors of the church building. (laughs) I don't want that. If so, for those of you who are in a Bible class, remember what God offers. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be white like wool. God wants to change us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to transform us from the inside out so that our hearts and our lives from day to day can be a reflection of his image, of his glory. If you haven't been transformed by the gospel, won't you let God transform you today? God sent his own son to die upon the cross, to pay the penalty, the death that we deserved for our sins. And Jesus didn't just pay the penalty. He conquered the penalty. He was raised again from the grave, conquering death, giving us a hope of sharing in that victory. By God's grace, if you confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, you can put your old life to death, crucified with Christ, buried in the waters of baptism. You can be raised by the grace of God and the power of the resurrection to walk a new life, a new life that is no longer lived for you, but for God. A life that reflects his character. If there's anything that we can do to help you in responding to the gospel and living the gospel, uh, if you need to to bring some prayer requests, some some sin before these brethren that we can pray to God, we're here to help one another. Uh, We are a hospital. (laughs) And if you have some wound that needs to be taken care of, the great physician can do that. If there's any way that we can help you in your service to the Lord, won't you please make that known as we stand and sing the song that Dave has selected.